Hey everyone, and welcome to this special feature interview edition of the Risky Business Podcast. My name's Patrick Gray. And we've got a great guest for you all today. We are chatting with Andrew Boyd, a career intelligence professional who serves as the current director of the CIA's Center for Cyber Intelligence, or CCI. In this interview, he answers questions like, where did you fake the moon landings? And how many gunmen did you have on the grassy knoll? So on and so forth. Of course, I am kidding. Uh, In this interview, we actually talk uh, about all sorts of stuff, uh, really. We'll um, talk about what CIA actually does in the cybers, what Andrew's views on the cyber aspects to the Russia-Ukraine conflict are, and why we can only draw some pretty limited lessons from observing the Russia-Ukraine cyber activity, you know, when trying to extrapolate that out to different conflicts, uh, such as one that might materialise between the United States and China in the Taiwan Strait. So I'll drop you in here where Andrew explains what CCI actually does, uh, and I hope you enjoy this interview. Cheers. CCI, Center for Cyber Intelligence, those are the initials, and that's what we commonly call it, CCI, uh, is CIA Cyber uh, Mission Manager, and that means uh, analysis, strategic analysis, uh, operations uh, in every sense of the word, uh, and the technological innovation that goes into feeding that analysis and operations. So it's a comprehensive matrixed organization wherein uh, every career discipline you can think of in CIA is represented in my workforce. Now, when we think of cyber and we think of intelligence, the organization that comes to mind is not the CIA, it is NSA. So I guess the question is, why does a human organization like CIA actually need to have a center like this? I mean, I, I, you know, there's many people out there who would think that you would just cooperate with other agencies that already have that expertise so as to avoid a duplication of effort. So we do collaborate with the entire uh, U.S. intelligence community, our other close allies across, across the globe. Uh, I think I'm in conversations uh, with NSA leaders on a daily basis, as is my le- leadership team. So, I mean, on that, in that sense, we collaborate with all of them. Uh, you've had Rob Joyce, uh, head of cybersecurity director up in NSA as a guest a couple of times. He and I are, are, are close friends and, and, and close colleagues. Uh, but where, and you correctly point out that CIA is fundamentally a human organization, but where CCI fits in that is we have one foot in the human camp and we have one foot in the technological enabling uh, cyber camp. And we actually utilize all of our capabilities from a human uh, perspective to enable cyber operations, not only on our own behalf, but for the entire community uh, and, you know, conduct our, our own operations where those operations also inform some of our human operations. So frankly, it's a very unique capability, a very unique contribution to the U.S. intelligence community uh, that complements, does not duplicate, complements what a lot of the rest of the community is doing. You know, and I I know this is a tricky area, but is there anything you can tell us that gives us a bit of a sense of of what it looks like, the the sort of stuff that you do? So CRA has had some... uh, you know, information operations capabilities since the computer was invented and, and, and internet space uh, was, in, was invented. It's evolved over time. It's obviously gotten a, a bigger enterprise. Um, you know, we, the Center for Cyber Intelligence used to be called the Information Operations uh, Center. Uh, that evolved in the early 2000s, post 9-11, uh, into a, an entity that was, you know, supporting uh, the, the, counter, the post 9-11 counter, counterterrorism fight. Um, but you know we're involved in in, 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 a, in a space again where where you know human can enable some of the complicated operations that we need to collect intelligence. We sometimes uh, find ourselves enabling other organizations' operations. We have a an extensive field presence in, in CIA, so you could, you could imagine bilateral relationships and how sometimes those are are part of that equation, uh, be it either operationally, analytically, or or sharing technological know how. Um, but a variety of those things, again, we're NSA space. I mean, they're a massive organization, uh, you know, who do a massive amount of global operations, uh, uh, as, as you discussed with Rob. Um, ours is a bit more niche. Uh, but again, we have evolved to a point where um, we are really focused on nation state actors and principally near peer competitors, uh, as, as DOD likes to talk about it, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea. Uh, but we were you know, really evolved over the past two decades uh, as a support entity uh, in that counterterrorism space. Um, Now, that is still a priority. We're still involved 
in that, but it's not our top four, one of our top four priorities. Yeah. So, I mean, the way, the way I sort of imagined it is, you know, the way that CIA would, would, would involve cyber, it would be more part of that sort of mission planning thing, right? You're planning a broader mission and you look at the way you can sprinkle a bit of cyber on, on a, on a particular thing to support the mission. Is that typically how it works? Not, not really. Uh, I mean, you <laughs> Great. know, okay. <laughs> some, some, some of my peers uh, would like it to, to work that way. We're not in the cyber business. You know, I, I mean, fundamentally I'm, I'm, I'm just a little, you know, background. I'm not an engineer. I'm not a computer scientist. I am a case officer, as we call it in CIA, an operations officer. And I spent the bulk of my career in the Arab world. I'm an, I'm an Arabic speaker, uh, working on counterterrorism issues, pr- principally in the field. Uh, but also my, my job prior to this job was as, as our chief of operations for counterterrorism in what we call our counterterrorism uh, mission center. Um, much like counterterrorism, you can't sprinkle a little bit of counterterrorism on whatever mission center it is and, and hope you'll, you'll, you'll you know, win. Uh, and you just can't sprinkle a little cyber on every mission set and, and, and hope you succeed. You have to use the expertise that you have in CCI, NSA, whatever uh, entity you're working with and whatever target set it is that you're you're going on so so yeah we 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 are a service provider i guess in another term for some mission sets wherein uh another you know a colleague of mine uh, outside of cci would identify the target we would provide the the service to that operationally but we're also the owner of the cyber threat mission which is exclusively our mission set both from an operational perspective uh and uh from an analytic perspective countering the nation-state and non-nation-state cyber threat, as you as you discussed on your show previously, frequently that non-nation-state uh, cyber threat ransomware actors have a dotted line relationship with a foreign foreign intelligence services, principally uh, China and Russia, uh, but Iran and North Korea as well. Um, and and so we we kind of do both. We we are a service provider, but we are also you know have our own mission set, which which is exclusive to CCI, but. We collaborate more directly with Rob's team and, and folks like that, DHS, CISA, Jen Easterly's team, uh, on countering that cyber threat. Yeah, so what does that look like from a CIA perspective? Because I would have thought that sort of that that general protection thing would have come more down to, to other organizations like CISA and NSA. You know, what's CIA's role in actually generally protecting the United States against cyber threats? So it's, again, uh, uh, not unlike any other intelligence collection mission we have. I, I you know, I, again, I was I raised in the counterterrorism mission space. Uh, you know, frequently we were the ones collecting the intelligence. We were the ones turning that into uh, actual information and frequently passing it on to either, you know, allied partners overseas uh, or to the United States military uh, and their partners for the actual action part of it. So similarly, you know, we collect a, a, a significant amount of, of intelligence on the cyber threat. Uh, again, this is, you know, where we're talking about our mission space as opposed to being a service provider, uh, you know, on, on other mission targets. We collect that intelligence uh, and then we, you know, disseminate that intelligence to a whole variety of customers. But our strategic analysis team then writes, uh, likewise, takes all source uh, in, uh, sources of intelligence, open source, uh, SIGINT, human uh, imminent uh, imagery intelligence uh, and a variety of other sources uh, you know you know the gray space of where open source meets clandestinely collected intelligence fuses that into analytic products that you know go all the way up to what we call the president's daily brief uh, for for president Biden and others all the way down to analytic products that then inform our, our next operation. So again, we're not replicating CIS's job. They are they are a customer of our intelligence product, our analytic product, as is our as is the rest of the community in this space. Uh, the, the National Cyber Director, which is in, a new office uh, uh, at the White House, they're a customer of, of ours. So again, in that space, we are we are a service provider from a very standard intelligence collection and analytic perspective. So when you're floating stuff up to the top, I mean, what's the stuff that, uh, you know, considering that you're responsible for collating a lot of this stuff, you know, analyzing it, surfacing the interesting stuff and sending it up to the, you know, very, very high office. I got to ask, like, what, what's the stuff that you're most concerned with at the moment from a sort of general cyber threat uh, uh, perspective? I mean, you know, during the colonial pipeline uh, period, we were brought into the mix on, you know, the ransomware threat and how do we counter that threat? We collect 
uh, intelligence against the ransomware actors. The 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 White House is very concerned uh, about the ransomware threat. Um, I don't I don't necessarily you know you know from my personal viewpoint I don't think that's the number one threat. Although it can be quite chaotic uh, for, for for the the U.S. Uh, civilian population. But what concerns me more is nation state actors uh, who view either intelligence collection, uh, theft of intellectual property, or uh, using uh, cyber means as as a t- as a tool of war, and th- and and that that concerns me m- more. We are not in a obviously an active cyber war with anyone, but pre- preparing for that uh, potentiality that 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 does keep me up at night, and that is where we do focus a great deal of our countering energy. Yeah, now that is a topic that is uh, near and dear to my heart because it's something, um, as you would know, right? Uh, we've been covering a lot. Uh, on risky biz, I guess mostly through the lens of like looking at what's happened with Russia, Ukraine over the last year and looking at uh, some of their cyber actions, right, against things like Viasat, various ISPs, and kind of using cyber as a way to fulfill what we're kind of calling EW primitives, right? So denial of comms and things like that. So, you know, it seemed to us like Russia had a very good plan for the first two weeks of its war. And then since then, they've just been doing this additive stuff of throwing packets as well as bombs at the same uh, sorts of targets. But that's, you know, what what we're seeing now in terms of the way, you know, quote unquote, cyber war is happening. It's not necessarily what we're going to always see uh, when there's when there's a conflict, right? Say something were to kick off between, I don't know, China and Taiwan, uh, you know, the West gets dragged into it. I'd imagine it would look very, very different. So, um, you know, let's put on our little speculation hats here, Andrew, and, you know, have a bit of a conversation about, I guess, what those type of conflicts could look like. I mean, from what we've been able to, to, to determine, um, just talking to people we know and, um, you know, among ourselves, it looks like one big area of concern is going to be things like logistics, right? Supply chains, things like that, particularly where, you know, the military and the private sector meet, um, uh, things like that as opposed to direct cyber attacks against like weapons platforms and supporting systems themselves, right? And I I just like, while I've got someone like you here and this is part of your actual job, you know, it would be insane of me not to ask you for, you know, for your feelings about all of that. So I I think we're kind of at a pivot point understanding uh, where cyber warfare such as it is uh, fits in. And and I know you and uh, Tom Uren, uh, and others uh, on the show have been discussing this. I mean, there's been quite a bit of academic uh, discussion uh, on, you know, what lessons we would learn from so so far from the the uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, and I, I think on your show a couple of weeks ago, you 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 mentioned a couple of papers uh, that were written by the Carnegie Institute, and and they've reflected uh, on this uh, as well. And 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 I, I I do think that the the plurality of, of, of the academic thought and and what you all have been discussing on your various shows uh, probably reflects uh, our our thinking on it. The Viasat attack um, as a supporting effort to an invasion uh, was effective. I mean they they brought down communicate uh, some Ukrainian communications. Uh, 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 f- for a period of well, time. Well, I mean, the, the Viasat one's the one that had the sizzle, right? But probably the more effective stuff was targeting the telcos. It just didn't make the news as much because it, they're not in space and space is sexy, right? Right, right. But but my point point being, it wasn't an enduring effect, uh, much like, you know, rocket attacks, missile, missile attacks on communications infrastructure would be an enduring effect. Um, so you know, there's been a lot of discussion on on why did this happen and why did we why did we as a community think that there was going to be more of a, a an enduring cyber uh, part of the, part of the the that that conflict and and I think there's a number of there's a variety of, of, of answers on that none of which are 100 percent conclusive but I think you know based on discussions that you've been having on your show and the acad and and academia. Um, you know, speed, intensity, and control are are the three variables that you need to sort of all be operating in synchronicity, and uh, for cyber effects to be effective. Um, and I, and I think that was really missing uh, in in the Ukrainian space. You know, again on on the Russian side. Um, you know, since NotPetya, um, the Ukrainians have done quite a bit to to bolster their defenses. And and had they not had that very miserable experience, they may have had similar problems with their electric. Uh, grid in particular 
um, if they had not uh, put up put up those defenses. Thirdly, um, you know, the Russian, as evidenced by by their you know kinetic planning, you know, I would argue they didn't plan particularly well in cyberspace for an enduring campaign because they they, they didn't plan very well for the armored invasion of uh, you know uh, from the north uh, into Kiev and and. I, I think you could probably extrapolate that they probably didn't plan particularly well uh, on the cyber side either. Fourthly, um, I, you know, I, I, I think the, the Russians, like, like other nation state actors, value the intelligence collection that they get via cyber means and may have not wanted to destroy uh, that, that c- capacity. Again, I mean, these are all, you know, potentially inconclusive thoughts on that, but that's, I think, where the bulk of folks... Uh, both in the intelligence community and outside the intelligence community, are thinking is is what really happened uh, over this period. So we learn those lessons. We don't want to overlearn those lessons, and then we think, okay, how would that apply to a situation as as you alluded to a cross Taiwan Straits uh, conflict? Um, Sorry, just think- before we get there, I ju- I just want to sort of reinforce something you're saying there, which is you know it really does look like the reason they didn't plan for an enduring effect is because they didn't think they'd need it you know like everything that we've seen over the last year and a a bit seems like they had a wonderful 10-day plan uh to take uh to take ukraine and thought it would be tremendously easy and you know you look at all of the good cyber stuff they did was sort of you know short duration stuff and it just seemed like there was this moment where the plan ended and there was no plan b right and 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 that's perhaps one of the reasons why we haven't seen any other um, attacks like that. But I do wonder if Russia plans some sort of new offensive, if we might see something similar again, some sort of more, you know, combined arms thinking um, uh, type of, um, you know, cyber action that's de- designed to actually make things easier on the ground. But it's hard to see that happening now that it's just turned into this attritional grinding fight, right? I, I Yeah, I, I mean, it, 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 it's hard to predict, but I, I would argue that I, I think they're on a, a trajectory where they probably wouldn't plan along those lines but we also i run the risk of, of mirror you know mirroring behavior that would make sense uh to to the u.s military to the, to the australian military when in fact the russian way of war is vastly different uh than that uh that you know our, our military or or you know our other allied militaries would do that the russian way of war is imprecise um it's it's disruptive it focuses on demoralizing civilian populations to a horrific degree, as we've witnessed uh, in, in Ukraine. Now, is that effective? Uh, we wouldn't consider it effective because it wouldn't, you know, a, a it wouldn't be the way our, you know, we would approach war just because it's not our value set. Um, but but does it have a military effect? I mean, you know, arguably it does have a military effect. And over the next, uh, y- you know, year, I mean, they'll probably continue to fight you know yeah this the same way look there's that that, that conqueror's mindset right like i know exactly what you're talking about it's a completely different uh framework for sort of thinking about how to how to do this sort of thing um i just want to say too one one other thing that you mentioned too is you were wondering about whether or not they uh didn't destroy things because they were worried about burning access we've seen cases of the of the opposite uh, you know, the, the whole thing's just really weird is what I'm getting at. Like, we saw that they had uh, access to a Ukrainian media organization and ran a wiper attack against it. And, and you know, I just would have thought that would be such an excellent place to collect from, and that just seemed really weird, you know? So I think top to bottom, we've seen some weird stuff with this one. It, 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 uh, definitely. And, and again, I mean, from an analytic perspective, we're still kind of cogitating as to, you know, what it, what it all means. But there's also, you know, the point on, on intelligence collection, I mean... You know, I don't know, but the intel the Russian intelligence services could have been focused on intelligence collection. But if you don't have a functional uh, policy apparatus to which the intelligence community can feed their intelligence product, their analysis, what's the point collecting policy, it? Yeah, right. The policy recommendations, um, and they obviously don't have a functional policy apparatus. They have a dictatorship. Um, it may not matter. Um, you know, if, if, if the decision makers in Moscow don't utilize, you know, what, what the intelligence that's being, that's being collected. But to your, your original question, you know, okay, lessons learned from Ukraine and how they apply to China. I mean, there, there will be some lessons learned, but Beijing views their cyber program very differently. I mean, uh, they consider, I, you know, we assess, they consider part of their, you know, in U.S. military parlance, you know, phase zero of, of their conflict. Um, and that a, a tool to achieve long-term military, uh, economic, and geopolitical advantages over us. 
over our Western allies, including Australia. Um, and, and incrementally over time, I think China has been bolder uh, in, in using in using these tools. So, I mean, we we assess uh, and again, without any concrete evidence, but we assess that that Beijing is you know trying to develop net, network network accesses uh, in the United States and you know elsewhere um, amongst our allies to give it uh, give the PRC a military advantage in, in any military crisis across Taiwan Strait scenario or other, otherwise. Um, in addition, uh, and, and I think you guys would discuss this on your show at some point. I mean, China's cyber program uh, is is in the intellectual uh, property theft uh, business. Uh, the personally identifiable information (PII) uh, theft. Uh, I mean, we you know the uh, they've stole stolen the personal identification or uh, personal information uh, from a whole array of, of uh, federal government employees. Um, but on the intellectual property front, from the the U.S. private sector and and elsewhere. I mean, I think it's uh, impossible to calculate, you know, the dollar value uh, of, of that intellectual property. So, I mean, for, for the Chinese, it's a vastly different thing how they use their, their cyber apparatus. I mean, when, I, when I've spoken to people recently, the thing that they've said is, yeah, look, Russia's really busy with the Ukraine war. And obviously, they, they're doing a lot there. But China is everywhere. You know, and this seems to be a, uh, you know, something that I hear a lot, right, is that just China is just the big, bad, completely pervasive, everywhere, all at once actor to the point where people seem a little bit rattled by that. I'm going to I'm going to be honest, right? Just the scale of it. Is that I mean, is that an assessment you agree with? Uh, it, it is. Um, and, and this uh, metaphor is getting a bit hackneyed. I may have actually stolen it from Rob Joyce. I'm not sure. But we frequently... Uh, in, in, in the Intel community refer to, to Russia as a tornado in cyberspace and, and China as climate change. Um, <laughs> you know, much more deliberate, much more global, and much more, you know, linked to concrete policy decisions that, you know, are, are, are less chaotic, I think, than they would be uh, on the Russia side. Yeah, the word that came to, the word that just came to my mind is uh, shambolic, right? Because that's you know there, there's elements of this Russia stuff that just really seems sort of shambolic and disorganized, and it's top to bottom. It's everything from you know military actions on the ground, you know individual troops, all the way up to the way that they're running some of their intelligence and cyber, uh, and just strategically, right? So just just absolutely a shambles. The Chinese seem much more organized, right? And and uh, you know much more integrated, and that begs the question. And forget about it even just being China. Let's just talk from a from a pure theory point of view. I mean, a lot of people were expecting the big bad cyber war to happen with Russia over Ukraine. It didn't happen. Now, whether that was over concerns of escalation or because they're just not organized enough or they don't have the scale, like we don't know, it doesn't really matter. The point is, it doesn't mean it's always going to be like this. And there is so much work that we have to do to get ourselves to a point where we can maintain resilience for and i mean just most countries all countries to where they can maintain resilience against a, a, a highly capable adversary who's doing everything to disrupt them now as i mentioned earlier the one thing that people keep coming back to is logistics right that's where they're worried uh because you know western militaries they rely on the private sector uh to handle a lot of logistics functions and the militaries don't have any control over those systems, right? So there, there seems to be some weak points there. Then there's things like, you know, highly connected weapons platforms and uh, weapons platforms that have very complicated supporting infrastructure. Like if you look at the F-35 Alice system, which has been, you know, pretty buggy and pretty awful. I mean, I think some people have gone overboard by estimating what you'd get by attacking that. They point out that a, a bug in that computer system caused a whole air wing of F-35s to get grounded. But my point is, if it were wartime, those things would not have been grounded because occupational health and safety is less of an issue at that moment. And who cares if you don't know when the last time that plane got an oil change is. You know, I'm rambling here, but I guess what I'm getting at is like, you know, where's the challenge, right? When you're up against a big adversary like that, you're thinking about a possible wartime scenario. You know, where is, where, where, where do we need to do the work? So, you know, I think we're a lot farther along and, and the very fact that we're discussing this on your on your show uh, and it's being discussed fairly openly uh, among cybersecurity professionals um, is a good thing. Uh, you know, Rob's team uh, up at CSD, I, they're charged with uh, defending the defense industrial base uh, from a cyber defense perspective. I mean, the, the, the 
the tools that they have at their disposal to be of value to that defense industrial base, you know, we didn't really have that a decade ago. Um, similarly, the stand-up of DHS CISA over the past several years and, and the integration that they have in non uh, the non-DIB sector, but also, you know, DIB, you know, again, defense industrial base adjacent, uh, I think is very advanced. I mean, the very fact that our Cyber Solarium Commission, uh, which, you know, stood up the National Cyber Director uh, office down at the White House. I mean, I, I just think there's certain key elements uh, in the U.S. government, but also in the private sector that are finally, you know, linking together. Are we where exactly where we need to be? Uh, probably not. Um, but again, the, the private sector, you know, unlike the war on terror, where which it was a, a government, federal government issue, a municipal government issue from a defensive perspective, um, but it wasn't really a private sector fight, uh, so to speak. Uh, the cyber threat is, and, and, and if the private sector isn't in lockstep with uh, the federal government in particular, um, it's going to be problematic. But I, I, I think we're a lot farther along uh, than we would have been uh, several years ago, and principally because both in the executive branch in the U.S. and, and, and on Capitol Hill, there's quite a bit of, of, of focus, both from a policy perspective uh, and from a resources perspective for the entire, not just the IC, but the entire cyber ecosystem in the federal government. You know, I even wonder if some of these concerns about uh, logistics are perhaps a little bit, you know, overcooked. Because when I think about it, right, like the stuff that you need to move for war, there's a lot of it, but Oops. it's held in a limited number of locations and people generally know how much of it they've got. If the computers disappear, surely one base can get on the phone to another base and say, hey, we need some fuel. Can you bring us some fuel, please? So I just sort of wonder, like, I understand that, um, you know, having these highly connected, uh, you know, systems allows the US military to operate in a very efficient manner. You know, but say there were some successful attacks against some of these systems, what do you think the non-cyber resiliency of, of uh, military organizations generally is like these days? Because I think we, to a degree, we don't give them enough credit. Okay, so, you know, maybe the sailors on the boats aren't going to be eating the same quality of food as they were before, but it's still going to have fuel in it and it's still going to have stuff that goes bang in it. Do you, do you sort of see what I'm getting at here? Yeah. So, you know, again, I, I, uh, I'm a historian, as I said earlier, not a computer scientist. So, I mean, you know, reading the history of warfare, you know, since the Roman epoch, it's quite astounding how, how uh, armies can be resilient in, in some extraordinarily negative circumstances. Yeah. I mean, just point, you know, in 2022 to the Ukrainian military and, and the unbelievable things that they had to, 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 to deal with. So, I mean, I, 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 I think there's uh, merits to their argument. Okay, let's not be alarmists about all of this. That being said, um, all the discussions that we're you having... you still got to do know, the work, right? Right. And, yeah. and so, I, so I, I, again, I, be it uh, the guys who are responsible for military logistics... The companies that are, are involved in supporting those log that logistics, you know, be it railroad, uh, be it air transportation, be it seaborne transportation, they they are aware of, of of the threats that 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 are out there from you know not just a cyber perspective but from a kinetic perspective as well, and that leads them to focus on changes with, with, within their environment. Um, but even if even if we underestimated that entire cyber threat. The resilience of the non-cyber facing uh, U.S. military it, it, it is pretty robust, and yeah. I, I'm I'm 100 and and the Australian military and the the UK military as well. I I I, I, there, I do not doubt their resilience. You uh, just pissed off any, all of the Canadians who are listening to this, and the Canadians and all <laughs> all, all, all of our allies. I think quite often on the computer science side, right people who research computer exploitation and stuff, they, they're very good at thinking about the way a system might operate, but they're not very good a, about imagining how people will, ad, will adapt in the absence of a system operating correctly, right? And I think that's, I think that's a bit of a trap that people in our discipline fall into, to be honest. I, and, and I agree, and, and which is um, part of the reason I think we've structured CCI in a way where we don't overthink or don't overfocus on one uh, professional discipline in CCI. Again, we have computer scientists, electrical engineers, uh, Arabists slash historians like myself, uh, analysts who come from a technical background, but also analysts who come from a ge geopolitical sort of an uh, analytic uh, perspective so that we all sit around as a leadership team saying, if X happens, what is going to be the reaction? And you'd be surprised the answers we come up with and that feeds into 
uh, our, you know, how we conduct our operations, but also how we provide an analytic uh, understanding to our policymakers and, and leaders. Now, earlier, Andrew, uh, you know, we've been we've been speaking about you know ultra big picture stuff, um, but you did mention that you know uh, ransomware actors are something that CIA tracks, which I did not know that. I think that's very very um, interesting. Why is it that CIA? is doing that is that because of colonial pipeline as you mentioned earlier was that the moment where you know the executive branch just said okay this is something we want you to track for us and keep a surprise to so we have been tracking ransomware groups as just the nature of our 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 job as as you know the the cyber threat you know operations and analytic element uh, of the cia um when the colonial pipeline uh, incident happened, it, uh, it was more akin to, okay, what kind of operational or analytic support can we provide the rest of the government to disrupt this ransomware ecosystem? So again, we're a supporting player. We support uh, NSA, D, uh, DHS, CISA, FBI, cyber, you know, they, they have the mitigation role and obviously the, the disruption role from a law, law enforcement uh, perspective. And really from an analytic perspective, what we really like to focus on is where those ransomware actors meet uh, state actors. And, and you know, with Colonial Pipeline, dotted line relationship with the Russian security services, um, the Hafnium hack on Microsoft, I mean, you know, there was a public attribution to the PRC MSS, uh, their, intelli- their uh, foreign intelligence organization, and really focusing on, on that analytic uh, line, but also focusing on on you know analysis and and operations so that we can I, you know look at that ecosystem and and advise uh, the, the 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 broader law enforcement or CISA community as to how we can d- disrupt that community. At the end of the day, they're criminals. They want to make money, and if there's a way we can disrupt their ability to make money, principally in cryptocurrency, then uh, then that is what you know where we vector uh, that community. But that's that's the role we play on the ransomware. It's not uh, on ransomware. It's not. Uh, unlike any other intelligence collection objective uh, that we have. Um, is it my number one priority? No. Uh, state actors, China, Russia, Iran, North mm-hmm. Korea are, are, are bigger priorities, but ransomware is is an important mission set for us. How, how does the CIA go about disrupting a ransomware crew? Is this something that you would do only via cyber means, or is this stuff that spills over into the real world? Because that's a question I think a lot of people have. Again, we would not disrupt ransomware actors. I mean, we would help enable others to disrupt. So this is purely uh, just collection and analysis? Uh, collection and, and analysis and, and you know potential uh, relationships that we have in the foreign sphere. If it's, if it's uh, you know, we want to use one of our bilateral partnerships overseas uh, to enable a disruption. Uh, but again, we would be in a supporting role uh, for for the rest of the cyber community, the cybers, uh, as you and Adam say, uh, uh, we would be in a supporting role for that. Now, you keep mentioning the dotted line that might connect some Russian criminals to um, uh, to the government or government agencies over there. You know, this is something that uh, we were speaking about this week because... Uh, the United Kingdom and the United States have sanctioned some of the members of TrickBot. And they, they said this really vague thing, which is that some of the people who are sanctioned were associated with uh, FSB or associated with Russian intelligence. And then they said they may have received direct tasking from them, which is about as wishy-washy as it gets, right? Like, you know, that, that seems like a pretty low confidence um, uh, you know, bit of text. So I guess, you know, you've mentioned it a couple of times. I mean, what's your feeling as to the connections between... Russian criminals and the Russian agencies. Because when it comes to China, you know, you mentioned Hafnium. It's so obvious that there are crews who have carte blanche to do crime and who also do stuff for the government. Like, it's so clear in China that that's the case. When it comes to Russia, it just seems the connections do seem much more dotted line, uh, as you say. But I, I just wondered if, if you've got any insight that you can share there from a general perspective. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, this goes back to my comment on we don't want to, you know, mirror image uh, our, our our adversaries um, because that's not the way we would do it. We would not like sort of give a criminal organization carte blanche uh, to take tasking from us and and uh, and and you know go do our bidding and and maybe they create an international incident a la Hafnium, maybe they don't. But the the Russians d- do do it that way. So so when you know why that statement is so vague is. Because, you know, to a Western audience, you know, that it is it is that big. It's it's they, they have FSB, GRU uh, connections. Um, is it a a client uh, employer, you know, kind of relationship? I know. Um, 
but are they allowed to do the, certain activities if they're on call to do certain activities for the you know the security services? I, I think you know we would argue that, that that is the case in the China in the China side. You know I I think it's uh, different. They just want to. I, I mean in my uh, assessment, they want to have a reserve cadre of folks uh, that are capable of doing things. Um, you know, at a minute's notice, if there is a, a military conflict, they need thousands. They of, have of been those. mobilizing patriotic hackers for twenty plus right. years, right? Like this right. is something China's been doing. Like normally, we expected them to kind of move beyond that as they formalized. You know, we thought, okay, this is them bringing together a cyber capability. They're going to pull together the nationalists who know how to hack stuff, um, you know, and build from there. But it seems like they're just sticking with that strategy, which is, um, I, I did not expect that. I'm going to be honest. But, you know, when they're, when these folks aren't preparing for potential military conflict or when they're not collecting intelligence, I mean, they want to make money and that is the way they do it. Now, again, uh, if operators working for me or working for NSA headed down that path, uh, they'd be prosecuted and that would be that. Um, but it just doesn't, op- you know, it doesn't work that way in, in, in China and Russia. And, and, you know, I wouldn't want that, want it to work that way uh, here. I mean, I, um, I have some phenomenally talented people uh, who are allowed to do what they do in CIA because it, it would be otherwise illegal activity outside of CIA and, and the rest of the intelligence community. And, and, I, and I think, uh, you know, because of our values uh, in the United States and the, and the rest of the Western world, um, that's kind of the way we want it. Mm. Where do you see the ransomware thing going? I'm curious, because with the FBI doing the what they did with Hive, um, you know, I thought that was spectacular. We did see eventually global law enforcement <clears throat> being able to combat the the threat of marketplaces like Silk Road. And they've been all driven into Russia. This is a slightly different starting proposition because the people we're chasing here are already in Russia. Um, but I guess what I'm getting at is once FBI and, you know, other agencies get a template for tackling this sort of stuff, once they get rolling, it seems like they're actually able to make a dent on things. You know, where do you think it's going to go over the next couple of years? Rans- uh, you know, in particular, uh, Western government actions against ransomware actors. Yeah, so a couple of weeks ago when that when the Hive takedown occurred, um, you and Adam uh, gave uh, my FBI cyber colleagues uh, a shout out, uh, which they greatly appreciated. Um, I, I, I think it was a well-deserved shout out. I mean, it, it was a, a long multi-month, six-month uh, operation, which was very effective. Um, uh, you, you talked on your show about that potentially being the model on how we combat uh, ransomware actors. I mean, I, I think it, it, it may be. But you, you, you all have ta- also talked about how um, the incentives for these groups uh, are evolving. Uh, you know, hack and leak, is that really going to be, you know, where, where uh, some of these, uh, is that going to be an effective model? It is, is, you know, stealing and encrypting sensitive data and threatening to release it publicly? Is that really going to continue to be a model that works, you know, and actually makes money? So I, I think that entire incentive base and that entire ecosystem is, is going to change. That stuff um, doesn't worry me, Andrew. I've got to be honest. It just doesn't because I just think people are not going to pay. Yes. And, and, and but two years ago, they felt like they had to pay. Yeah. Now that they, they feel the, feel like maybe I'm not going to pay. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's only the it's only the disruption to operations that make people pay in ransomware anyway. You know, like that's what they right. were paying to get. They were paying to get their businesses back up and running because the downtime was costing them money. And so, you know, they can they can do hack and leak all they want. No one wants to read the email from a cardboard box factory. No one cares, you know, but if that box factory gets shut down, you bet they're going to pay to get it back up and running. And I and I and I do think the, the you know the box factory any of that sort of thing where you know leaking of information is, is not particularly relevant. But you know the the place that does worry me is, is the ransomware activity against you know hospitals, yeah, uh, against against school systems. You know uh, that that you know I, I don't think any anyone has a sense of humor about that in this in the law law enforcement or or intelligence community. And 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 I do think. FBI in particular, but, you know, the other elements, CISA and whatnot in, in this community are going to be very focused on that. Um, our policy uh, makers, uh, both the, on the executive branch and the legislative branch, are very, very focused on this. So, you know, despite the incentives changing for ransomware actors, I, I think there's a, a very intense uh, focus, you know, in the U.S. government and obviously in the Australian government. The Australians have, you know, stood up a task force on this with which, you know, our community collaborates. Um, but this, the, you know, this will continue to be a, a, a front burner issue, but I think it's going to evolve. And I think that 
the hive takedown will, will, will trigger a bit of evolution in that space. Yeah, it's interesting. It's very interesting stuff. Now, look, let's talk about why you're here, right? Because the idea of this interview happening even five years ago would have been insane, right? Um, you know, the CIA is not known for appearing on podcasts. So, Andrew, you know, why are you here? You know, so our, our, our director, uh, you know, has a, a very public pr uh, profile. You are correct. Uh, someone like me who spent, uh, you know, a career uh, doing clandestine operations wouldn't typically then show up on a on a podcast. But, you know, we're, we're in an epoch where we're uh, competing with a whole bunch of employers uh, in the United States, as you know, as I think people are, you know, across the globe, uh, wherein, you know, we want to in, in cyberspace, we want to hit key in influencers in the cyber community. Patrick, you are one of those key influ Ooh, influencer, uh, yeah, influencers. Fancy. Yes, uh, an influencer, uh, you know, globally, uh, frankly, since th this show has a global uh, a global audience. Um, and impress upon, you know, the cyber community, uh, you know, folks like us, but also uh, people who are, you know, currently in university uh, in, a, in technical programs or, you know, in, in non-technical programs that are cyber adjacent. So that they understand that CIA should be it should be considered an employer of choice for them, um, and and that you know coming out of college, coming out of graduate school, or even coming out of the military at an older age or other professions, uh, that we have uh, a use for highly skilled, highly motivated people. I mean, we we hire folk folks from a wide variety of academic backgrounds, also a wide variety of occupations, skill sets, and we need people with foreign language capabilities computer science capabilities, data scientists, analysts who can, you know, have, have technical understanding and ability to write product quickly uh, and then be able to brief it to the senior most uh, leaders in the U.S. government up to and including uh, the president. Most directly, you know, for the audience, for your audience that I want to get to is that, you know, we want the most technically proficient talent uh, to be coming into CIA, particularly into, into CCI. Uh, and 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 bring their step STEM skills to to this fight. We're looking for people, you know, with intellectual curiosity, interest in uh, international affairs, experience overseas, or at least a willingness to develop uh, experience overseas, uh, and, and you know, and an ability to to you know really work get work to the bone on, on what is a really uh, critical yeah. mission. So, I mean, I I get it, right? Like, so you know, you're not the only person in government. I've spoken to who's having trouble recruiting, right? Uh, there's there's just generally a tech shortage. But like the CIA has a lot running against it from a recruitment perspective. First of all, there's the fact that you would have to take a salary haircut, um, you know, as compared to the private sector. Now, on September 12, 2001, people would have worked for, you know, canned food uh, for you guys, right? After what happened in the United States. That motivation seems to have diminished somewhat, right? Like there's no, no longer that sense that the United States is under attack. So that's one driver that's been knocked out. You know, other things we hear is that it takes something like a year and a half, the recruitment cycle um, between the first interview and then actually getting the job. So, you know, I mean, it, there, there seems like there's a lot of things here that are kind of working against you. And, you know, how, how do you begin to recruit in, in that sort of environment when you've got those sort of impediments to, to bringing people on? So the director has a, has a program, initiated a program to, to reduce that, that hiring time that's still in motion. Uh, and and I, I'm not, I can't really get into the, 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 the details of it, but suffice it to say that, you know, we as an organization have recognized that as a problem uh, and are, are, are doing a lot of work to, to, to rectify it. Uh, on the, you know, that I, I'm, I'm a, uh, a product of that post 9/11 environment. Um, I, you know, to your point, I, uh, I I'm from New York. Uh, my sister was in, in Lower Manhattan on 9/11, so I had a, a, a personal vendetta uh, in, in that counterterrorism fight. So that that motiv motivated me and most of my peers uh, and near peers uh, through, throughout that epoch. Um, but I would argue, um, despite the fact that I grew up in that counterterrorism environment, the threats that we face now uh, at, you know, existential threats to the to the survival of our way of life um, for, from nation state actors. It's less immediately satisfying than a, a, a counterterrorism mission. Uh, but I, I would argue it's more uh, of, of a critical mission for CIA at this point. So you on your it's point about it's the a, It's a bigger fight, I guess, is what you're It's a bigger fight, yeah. yeah. So... I, to your point on the salary haircut, that is true. Uh, we are we are trying to uh, uh, institute programs uh, 
to, to try to at least not approach it, but make it make some incentive pays uh, for people in certain skills, skill categories, uh, that'll help. But really, at the end of the day, really, you know, what motivates people, and I've, I've asked my junior workforce, you know, from top to bottom across the career disciplines is, is what motivates them to accept that lower salary is it is effective leadership and it, and a mission that matters. And so in my tenure in this job, I've been in this uh, director of CCI for three years. That is what I've really tried to focus on. I, I, I've initiated some incentive pay programs, but really what I've tried to focus on is providing the kind of leadership that young people expect in an intelligence collection analysis and technological innovation mission and a mission that means something against nation-state actor threats or, 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 or otherwise, uh, and where they can see demonstrable impact uh, with with whatever it is, whatever career discipline they're working on. So. Now, I guess, you know, there is another sort of somewhat, uh, a bit of an elephant in the room, which is the CIA has, has uh, is an organization that has pretty consistently um, done some pretty horrible things, right? Now I'm talking about during the Cold War period, uh, a lot of bad stuff uh, uh, happened uh, thanks, thanks to the CIA. And indeed over the last 20 years, you know, we've seen a lot of headlines around things like, um, uh, you know, dr- drone strike programs and what is it? The, um, uh, you know, enhanced ter- interrogation stuff and black sites and all of this sort of stuff, which, you know, I'm, I'm just wondering if perhaps that might be something that would dissuade someone from wanting to work for CIA. Like, does brand damage factor into this at all? I don't. I don't think so. And, I, and I'm not. Yeah, I, I'm not going to. You know, the history on all of that is has been well documented uh, in the press. So I'm not going to comment on a lot. Of, a lot of those. But I mean, like, what I focus on is the for, forward-looking mission, the future from 2023 on, um, and, and and the workforce that we need today. Uh, tomorrow and 10, 10, 10 years from now. And, and again, I, I, I don't, uh, I don't see that particular branding problem, uh, affecting, you know, our, our, our hiring, uh, uh, and, 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 you know, the equally important, our, our, our retention. One of the things that we do have to work on as a community, there's people who want to come into this mission will take the, the pay cut, but at the seven year, seven to nine year point where they're like a journeyman in whatever discipline it is that they're working on, um, they may have that itch to like, hey, I want to go back to industry or, or I've, I've never worked in the private sector. I want to see what that's like. I want to make a little bit of money. Can I come back three years from now? Uh, and so we are trying to trying to fix that. And, and, and I don't want to say develop a revolving door, but have a little bit more flexibility on how we allow people to do externships how we allow people to go out to the private sector and then come back. Because what we have also found is that people go, leave, leave CIA and, and that door is closed. But then within a few years, they're like, you know what? I made a lot of money or I made whatever number it was I felt like I needed to make, but I don't have a sense of purpose on what I'm doing. I don't have a sense of mission and I want back in. Um, and I want that for that, that, you know, those people that want back in or the people that don't haven't even expressed that they wanted back in, that they have an option to do that. And the director has endorsed that, again, not just for the cyber discipline, but a whole variety of disciplines. You know, for me and my peers, it, was, it wasn't really an issue. I mean, we, we spent, a, you know, 9-11 happened. You know, we wake up one day and we've been doing this for two decades. Uh, and you're, we're at a point where, you know, we can retire and move on to to a private private sector engagement if that's what we wanted. And that was a good model in the post 9-11 environment to retain people. I I don't think it is going to be a good model, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, from 2023 on, and we do have to adjust fire on that. Now, you mentioned uh, at the top of the interview, you spoke a little bit about the history of uh, CCI, right? That's what you call it? So the Center for Cyber Intelligence, CCI, CCI right? Yes. I, I, you know, I'm going to ask you a question here, and I'm going to be uh, delicate about it. I mean, there was a lot of reporting about a a, a system, an internet-facing system that was used by CIA to communicate with people in the field. You know, from public reporting, it looks like you know usually sort of lower value sources and things like that. Uh, you know, the reporting says that this system was uh, discovered by uh, adversaries and it was used to round up a lot of those people and, um, you know, uh, bad things happened to them. Let's just say that. We covered this in our, in our um, you know, newsletters and, and, and podcasts and the thinking was really like this was a pretty poorly handled thing. Now, I know you're not going to be drawn on questions about that, right? But I'm wondering, were there a few oh shit moments within CIA 
that made senior management realise it needed to get serious about developing in-house expertise when it comes to this sort of thing? So, you know, in CCI, we have oh shit moments on a daily basis and then we <laughs> fix it and, uh, and move on. Uh, as far as the incidents you're referring to, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to uh, comment on those. But, you know, we are a, a self-reflective uh, organization. CIA makes mistakes, uh, analytic mistakes, operational mistakes, technolo- technological mistakes, personnel mistakes. Uh, but what we tend to do is look in the mirror, reflect on, on how we can improve, do what in the military we call an, an after-action uh, review, uh, and then learn, learn those lessons, uh, document those lessons, uh, and, and move on. Um, I'm frequently asked, you know, what is the most important characteristic? And it used to be when I was, you know, in the director of operations, what's the most uh, important characteristic of an effective intelligence officer? And I always say self-awareness. And if you, if you, you can lie to other people, but if you're lying to yourself, you are a crap intelligence officer. So I would argue that you could apply that to the entire institution what is the most important uh characteristic of the ci and it's self-awareness and when we are not self-aware and we don't reflect on our mistakes we continue to repeat them and 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 in cci uh my goal is to ensure that we are self-aware enough that we, we are allowed to make mistakes we are allowed to fail but we also have to learn from them yeah you have to know so, what you don't know i think is really what right. you're getting at all right, Andrew Boyd, uh, thank you so much for sitting down to do this interview and to and to talk through a bunch of this stuff. You know, it's been a really fascinating uh, it's been a really fascinating discussion. Thank you. So, Patrick and I, what I would just like to say is, you know, I, I think I've mentioned this to you before that I'm a longtime listener. I've been listening to your show shows plural uh, between two nerds, your Tuesday show, seriously risky biz, and then the other shows. And I just want to thank you for inviting me on, uh, and I want to thank you. Uh, Adam, Tom, Catlin, Claire, uh, for providing all of us in CCI uh, an enormous amount of analysis and information uh, that me for a very long drive to my office uh, is is very important to get my mornings off uh, correctly. Two years ago, uh, my deputy uh, was in the elevator with one of our operational people and he was talking about your show and my deputy said, Risky Biz, I haven't heard about that. That then proliferated across all of CCI and so you have a major listener base uh in in, in cci and uh, i i think they'll be listening to this one in particular <laughs> that's awesome thank you for saying that cheers